0: So our scripture reading will be taken from Acts eleven, nineteen to thirty. If you guys would turn there with me in your Bible or your phone. If you're using the Bible in front of you in the pew, it's on page nine twenty. In the first chapter of Acts, Jesus told his disciples that he would use them to take the good news from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That is exactly how the book of Acts has unfolded in the first ten chapters. After its beginning in Jerusalem, we have heard in recent months about the good news of Jesus reaching all Judea and Samaria. Then, last week, Pastor Craig preached from Acts 10, where we saw a Gentile family from the ends of the earth, so to speak, come to faith in Christ. As we are reading along, we might wonder... Are Gentiles now going to come to Christ in larger numbers, like they did in Judea and Samaria in chapters before? The answer is yes. Please follow along with me as I read today. You can stand with me in reverence for God's word if you're able. Now those who have were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch,
1: Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Hey, as Laura read that scripture text, did you hear all the different people that were involved in that account of the founding of the church at Antioch? This is the world's first Jew-Gentile church, and this is a church that would become a sending church, a launch pad for future Christian missions all over the Roman Empire, as we take a deeper dive into this story, I want us to take a close look at the characters who are involved in the story along the way. Uh, we'll meet them in the story as they appear and as the story unfolds. The story unfolds like this. First, it's the planting of the church in Antioch. Then it's the encouraging of the church in Antioch. And then it's the maturing of the church in Antioch. And we'll meet various characters along the way. But let's start with the planting Here in our time this morning, it's verses 19 through 21. The main characters there are the church planters, the ones who came and initially shared the good news there in Antioch. But interestingly, they're unnamed. Uh, Let's focus on them as I reread one more time, just verses 19 through 21. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So maybe it's helpful to trace their movement on a map. These are people, ordinary believers, who started in Jerusalem But then when Stephen was killed, back in chapter 7, the authorities started going door-to-door, rounding up Christians, and these people were among those who fled from Jerusalem to the outlying areas. And they've been in chapters 8 through 10, we've seen them in Judea, and then Samaria, which is right up in here. And then in today's text, we see them getting as far as Phoenicia, which is here, and Cyprus, this island here, and Antioch, which is where we'll spend the most of our time in the text this morning. These are just ordinary believers, and as they expand with the gospel, the gospel is expanding not just geographically, but also culturally. Now we're in some areas that are Gentile territory, meaning non-Jewish territory. There's Jews who live there, but primarily Gentiles living in these regions of the Roman Empire up to the north. So efficiency-minded Christians like you and me, maybe, Um, If we were given the chance to be part of the strategic planning team to take the gospel from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, we might have um, come up with a vision for how we were going to do this. We might have hired some organizational leadership consultants to come on in and help us come up with a slogan that we could put on a t-shirt and we'd hand out t-shirts here at church. We'd have a really well thought out plan for how the gospel was going to proceed from one area to the next in concentric circles. But what's interesting, as we've been reading along in the book of Acts, is that this is happening in a pretty unplanned sort of way, actually, where we might have put celebrities as the celebrity Christians as the first ones to take the gospel to these Gentile unreached areas to make sure it goes well. It's just these ordinary Christians who are going out as they're on the run and they're gossiping the gospel everywhere they go, and it's not according to any sort of plan that had been laid out in advance. Um, it just strikes me that they're ordinary people. And I can picture, you can picture them going into towns like Antioch, and maybe they're just asking around looking for, I have an Uncle Elmer who lives here in Antioch, and we're hoping to stay in his basement while we're on the run. You know my Uncle Elmer? And as they get into conversation, they're just, hey, by the way, have you heard about this guy Jesus and the stories about him? i got to tell you, because it's just the juiciest story they know to tell. It just can't help but spill out of them as they're having conversations with these people in the new cities where they find themselves. And as they go into Gentile cities, it just continues because they cannot help speaking about what they've seen and heard, as they said back in Acts chapter 4. So let's think about us here on the North, uh, on the North Shore, us here at North Sub for a second. Um, and how this relates to our lives. Back in October at our congregational meeting, we identified that as a church, we kind of feel like we have an evangelism problem right now. Evangelism just means uh, sharing the good news about Jesus with others. We feel like we're maybe not so good at that right now as a church, Um, whereas these early Christians in Acts couldn't help speaking about what they had seen and heard. We can help it. I guess. We've we found a way to keep our mouths shut in some situations, and we've, uh, many of us have owned that in our own lives. Um, so today at our congregational meeting, We're going to hear about an NCD team that has been formed that is going to help us strategically plan how we are going to make a change here in this area as a church and become a church that evangelizes and evangelizes well. And that planning and strategy I'm really excited about. It's going to be really good. It's going to be so important for our church. But Acts 11 is actually just a a reminder to us that all the plans and all the strategies in the world aren't the end-all, be-all of evangelism right? Um, if we have the absolute best strategies we could possibly have, but we don't have the, I cannot help speaking about what I've seen and heard that these early Christians have, all the best plans won't come to anything in the end. Um, it's, it's a reminder to us that when we, make, uh, when we say our evangelism is lacking because we lack a good strategy, really at the bottom, that's an excuse that we're making. Um, our strategizing can honor the Lord, don't get me wrong, but if all of our strategy will come to naught if we aren't being faithful and honoring the Lord in the way that's most honoring to Him, which is just by being courageous enough to open our mouths and share this message. Um, Now, somebody would say, well, faithfulness doesn't guarantee results, doesn't guarantee that people will come to faith in Christ, right? That's why we have strategies, so that we will see more results of our evangelism, that people actually come to saving faith in Jesus. And to that we would say, well, of course we care about the results. There would be something wrong with us if we didn't care what happened when we shared the gospel with people. We care very much about it. So let's take a look at what this passage says about results. I'm thinking specifically about verse 21 is when Luke brings up results. A great number who believed turned to the Lord, but I want to think about that first half. What comes right before that in verse 21? It's not, they had great strategies, so a great number believed and turned to the Lord. It's not even, they were very faithful and courageous in their evangelism, so a great number believed and turned to the Lord. What does it actually say? Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Friends, if you're praying with us that we become a church that evangelizes better, In the future, maybe this is a way that directs our prayers. Um, Yes, we want to pray that we'll have good strategy for doing so. And yes, we want to pray that we'll be courageous and faithful to share the message that has been so dear to us. Those are really, really important. But let's make sure we're also praying that the hand of the Lord is with us. Because that is what's connected to the results here. And there'll be fruit from our evangelism only if his hand is with us. His hand meaning his power and might going before us. Nothing can be achieved without that. But some of us have stories from our own lives in which um, even in our fumbling, faltering evangelism, when we shared the gospel with somebody, we're like, that did not come out right. Some of us have seen positive outcomes even in those moments because for whatever reason, the hand of the Lord was with us as we shared. We've mentioned positive outcomes. What is a positive outcome of evangelism? Um, what are we hoping will happen. Uh, we don't shy away from using the word conversion for one thing that we're hoping will happen out of our efforts in evangelism. And what is conversion? Dr. Lau preached a few weeks back in chapter 9 that true conversion, converting to faith in Jesus, involves two parts. It involves both belief and repentance, or turning to the Lord. It involves both of those. Both of those are required in order for faith to be saving faith. And verse 21 actually has the same two pieces noted. Did you notice that? There's two action words in verse 21. A great number who believed, turned to the Lord. These are people who believed and they turned. In other words, when we get a new relationship with Jesus by believing in him, we also necessarily get a new relationship with our sin. We turn from it. We reject it now, right? If you haven't gotten a new relationship with your sin, then that shows that you haven't actually gotten a new relationship with Jesus, through faith, right? Um, both faith and repentance are necessary for saving. For faith to be saving, faith. Now, friends, if you're here this morning and you haven't yet gotten a new relationship with sin because you haven't yet found a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior, we hope and pray for that for you this morning. And there's probably somebody in this congregation who's actually praying for your conversion. And if that freaks you out or makes you uncomfortable, um, I would just ask you to think about the alternative for a moment. What if we were a bunch of Christians in this room who claim to have found something that is the greatest treasure we've ever found in the person of Jesus Christ who came and lived a perfect life and then died on our behalf taking the punishment that we deserve for sin so that we could be with him forever and ever in heaven for eternity? What if we had that treasure and then we didn't love you enough to tell you about it or to want you to have the same experience that we've had, right? What kind of cruel people would we be? What kind of unloving people will we be? So we want that for you. And if anyone here this morning is at a place where they're considering that and wanting to know more about it, please stay after with us. Hang out at our congregational meeting. Come talk to us. Grab us out in the hallway afterwards and let's talk more about faith in Jesus and repentance, turning from sin and turning toward God. Because many of us have experienced it's the greatest thing that we um, could ever treasure on this earth and beyond. We've seen the church plant now in verses 19 through 21. Before we leave those first three verses, though, I just want us to just go on an imaginary journey to that church in Antioch. Uh, because I think the better we understand this church at Antioch, the better we're going to understand the verses that will come in the rest of the passage. So if you need to close your eyes, close your eyes. But picture this church. This church is a church full of new believers, who have believed for a very short period of time. Um, They are being taught by people who are new believers, because after all, this is probably about the year 48, there aren't that many people who have even been believers that long. So the people who shared the word with them originally, who are leading this church, are themselves, many of them, new believers. On top of all that, these are Gentiles, meaning they're not Jewish people, meaning that they didn't grow up going to Sunday school, they never saw the flannel board of Jonah and the whale. And... When they were, uh, they probably don't know the difference between Abraham and David, and they've grown up their whole life in towns and cities in which they were surrounded by um, wild living, pleasure-seeking. It was just the air they breathed all around them, and that's what they've been comfortable with living in, and that's the life that they've been saved out of, right? So picture walking into a church like that. Um, When I picture it, I picture there must have been a lot of energy and enthusiasm because of this new Jesus thing that they're all excited about. But when I think about how healthy this church probably was, I'm not sure it was a super healthy church at this point. right? Because I think about how mature this church at Antioch was, it probably wasn't a super mature church at this point. right? And I picture the enemy, our enemy Satan, who was referred to in one of these songs earlier, um, scheming about a church like this one. And wanting nothing more than to derail this church in its early stages and get it off the rails. Um, And it's ripe for the taking because of these new believers who have a lot of excitement but not a lot of depth. So that's why we need another character to enter the story in verse 22, Barnabas. So let's turn to the second section of our text. It's the uh, encouraging of the church at Antioch in verses 22 through 26. And I want you to just focus in on Barnabas' role For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So the believers in the Jerusalem church have been believers for longer so that they can see that this church in Antioch, this new church, is susceptible to the enemy's schemes. So they send Barnabas, who's a leader in the church at Jerusalem. We've seen him already in Acts. And Barnabas is a remarkable guide. One of the most remarkable things about him that we see in the book of Acts, I think, is right here, when he shows up in this church that we've already noted was um, probably not super healthy, not super deep, not super rooted, not super mature, but what does he see when he comes and visits that church? You see what he saw in verse 23? What stood out to him? He saw the grace of God. He saw the grace of God at work in the midst of all that. Uh, let's think about what he could have seen alternatively, right? He could have seen the problems. That could have been front and center for him. Man, that first hymn that they sang, that was borderline heretical, right? Uh, the high schoolers were over here while I was preaching, and they were Snapchatting each other the whole time, um, I talked to somebody after service who didn't even know she needed to stop being a prostitute when she came to know Jesus, right? I'm sure there are some issues like that going on that if you and I went and visited the church at Antioch, we'd be shocked by some of the things we saw because that's just the nature of being around baby Christians, right? But that's not what stood out to Barnabas. What stood out to Barnabas was the grace of God at work. What else could have stood out to him besides the grace of God? He wouldn't be the first one if he went to the church at Antioch with these baby Christians and he resented them for their status before God after having lived such wild lives in the past, right? You can picture it. He could have been like, you know, I've been living a good life as a Jew my whole life, and then I put my faith in Jesus, and now these people are going to get to go to heaven just like I did? What's up with that, right? But he didn't go there. Instead, he saw the grace of God at work and focused on that. What else besides the grace of God? He could have wanted to put these nameless church planters in their place when he showed up, Right? Like, hey guys, you know, I, you know, I admire your efforts coming here and telling these people about Jesus, but the big dog's here now, right? So step aside, let me take this, okay? Hey people, listen up, listen up. These people tried to teach you the best they could, but you haven't been taught very well. Listen to the real deal, right? He could have taken that attitude, but he didn't go there. He didn't go to any of those places. He focused on the grace of God, and that's what stood out to him when he saw. He was like, wow, Lord, you have... Brought this church out of nothing, using unnamed ordinary people just gossiping your gospel. And this church has such potential, and I'm so glad to be a part of it. That was his attitude when he came to this church. I just got to tell you, that's so convicting for me personally, um, because I'm the opposite of Barnabas in the overwhelming majority of ways in my life, right? I am, uh, well, Barnabas, did you know his name wasn't even really Barnabas at birth? It was Joseph right? Barnabas means son of encouragement. So it seems like back in chapter four, what happened is he's just going around encouraging people so much that they just started calling him son of encouragement, right? People have called me a lot of nicknames in my life. Son of encouragement isn't one of them Um, because I'm a perfectionist. And what goes along with that for me is that I have a critical spirit. So All the time, it feels like I'm just noticing all these things that I think are wrong that need to be fixed. That's just where I go in my natural disposition. Um, I'm the opposite of Barnabas in that way, and maybe some of you are. I think some of you probably are perfectionists like that too. And where do we go when we step into a new situation and visit a new church like this, right? We start spouting off about all the grave injustices we're seeing in the world around us, right? And if anybody tries to criticize us for being critical, we... Uh, start to defend our role in the community by saying, well, we really contribute to the community because we're seeing all the problems and naming them, calling them out, and by doing so, we're raising the level of excellence for everybody around us, right? We make all those excuses, but Barnabas, he's uh, convicting to us. He's a rebuke to us, his story here in Acts chapter 11. Because what these people needed at this moment in Antioch was not somebody to come in and just start railing on them about all the problems that they had what they needed was somebody to come in and see the grace of God at work and name it and encourage them in that and that's exactly what Barnabas did but we shouldn't go too far to the other side and just paint Barnabas as if he's some softy who is just okay with leaving this baby church exactly where they're at right because look at the second half of verse 23 what does he do he exhorts them right what does he say He exhorts them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You can picture him, can't you? Just pleading with them. He's so happy, so excited, giving them all these encouraging words and he's like, y'all, there's an enemy out there who wants nothing more than to get you off track in these infant stages of your church. Don't let him do it. Stick with the Lord. Remain steadfast in your purpose more than anything else to stay with the Lord, friends. You can picture him saying that. He's exhorting them and then he does something that's astounding right after this exhortation. What does he do? He leaves temporarily to go get the best teacher that he knows about for a group of Gentiles like this one. He goes 150 miles to Tarsus to get Saul. Is it making more sense why verse 24 says that he was a good man? This is somebody who can walk into a situation where others would see problems and he sees grace. This is someone who can exhort with love. This is someone who can step back and not be the hero of the story when many of us would want to be the hero of the story and see an opportunity to do so. Um, I need more Barnabas in myself. I know that I do. Um, I don't like to do what Barnabas did here and see that I'm not the one who's needed and go get the one who is needed. I don't like to admit that I'm not the one who's needed here. Right? He goes and gets Saul because he knows what these people really need is Saul right now. And if I went to go get Saul in this situation, I would be viewing that as a failure. Because what does that mean about me, that I can't teach these people myself and get the job done on my own? But here's Barnabas, and he's just, I don't need to be the hero of this story. I'm going to go get Saul, because these people need to hear from Saul. He's a great teacher. There's some Barnabases here in this church that I've been so blessed to be around these last two years. Um, There's so many names that, come to mind. Um, a few that I thought of, uh, Lynn Murray, Bob Jenkins, Mike Lickwalt. These are people that you can just hear them in the hallways, just going up to people, encouraging them, calling out and naming the gifts that other people have and encouraging them to step into the fullness of God, who, who God created them to be. That's such a beautiful thing. I need more of that in my own life. I'm convicted by it and challenged by it. We need Saul's as a church, people who can teach And come in and advance the word of God. But we also need Barnabases who can point out, hey, you're the one actually right now. You're the one who God's calling to take us a step further in advancing the gospel. And encourage people to step into what God's called them to be. So I want to ask the question to you in two parts. One, who's your Barnabas? Who's the person in your life who notices your gifts? Who sees you as a diamond that's just waiting to be polished? Who's that person who encourages you and exhorts you to step into all what God created you to be? And on the flip side, who's your Saul? Who's that person that you see great potential in? You see them as a diamond waiting to be polished. You are exhorting them to not hang back but go step up and be used by God. I have to believe that this mentoring, this experience that Saul had with Barnabas was so influential for him. As later on, he ends up taking guys like Timothy and Titus under his wing and doing this exact same thing. Um, So, they have a year where Saul and Barnabas together teach this church. And what happens as a result, um, probably just exactly what we would expect to happen as a result. The honeymoon period that this church is in just continues. It must have been just an awesome year. I bet these people talked about this year of their lives for years and years to come and told stories from it. When Barnabas and Saul were teaching us together that year, do you remember that? Um, Some of us have had experiences like that. Uh, Those experiences when you just feel so close to God, you feel like you can't even feel any closer to him if you were brought up to heaven itself. When he's just on the move and his presence is almost palpable in your midst. And every day you're waking up rejoicing about what God's doing in and around you. I don't know, I don't know if we're supposed to pray for those times, but I'll admit that I do. Sometimes I pray that God would allow me, once again, to be part of something like that when he was on the move in a way that you could just feel it, and you feel like you're part of something that makes the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. Um, I pray for that sometimes, and uh, I don't know, we might get a chance to be part of that even here at North Sub, one day in the future. If we do, God's prepared us here in his word in Acts 11 for what to do in that moment, in that honeymoon season. Uh, What do we do? Well, Barnabas sees what to do. This This honeymoon season when people are coming to the Lord and there's so much excitement, this is exactly the time to send the roots deep. This is the time to really set down roots and plant a deep, deep foundation for the church. Um, I'm thinking about verse 24 you see people are added to the Lord so it's a honeymoon period what we're tempted to do is to pat ourselves on the back for how great it is or to just soak in the emotional and spiritual high that it is Barnabas when people are getting added to the Lord in verse 24 goes and gets Saul because he wants the roots to start going down deep right in this moment and that's exactly what happens Um, in verse 26 as a result These people get called, they get the honor, the privilege of in all of Christian history being the first church to be called Christians. And it seems like from verse 26, it wasn't the church themselves that came up with the name. It was actually the people of Antioch that didn't believe in Jesus who named them Christians. Um, These are Christ people is what they were saying. Just like in the gospels we see Herodians, those are Herod's people. These are Christ people, so what better name than Christians? When people watched how this church was living... Their allegiance to Christ was what defined them. It's what they talked about. It's how they acted. And so they said, well, who are those people? Those are the Christians. Those are the Christ people. It made me think about what if in 2018 we didn't have the name Christian available to us. We didn't have a name for ourselves. There was no name that was known for us. And some people just followed us around this week as a church. they just kind of like, everybody kind of like followed a few of us. And then they came back together at the end of the week to report their findings. And at the end of the week, they decided they're going to name us based on what they saw. What would they see? What would they conclude? What would they name us, right? What would be the defining feature that they saw in our lives? What would be the consuming pursuit of the hours in our day? What would be the one thing in our life that explains all the rest of the things in our life? For this church at Antioch, that thing was Christ. And so... They became known derogatively probably at first, but then they took it on as a term of endearment as Christ's people. Well, we need to look briefly, just more briefly, at the third uh, section of this text, the section of the text in which this church is maturing. Uh, we're going to see here that true true church growth isn't just about numerical increase, but it's actually about growth and maturity as well. Listen for that in verses 27 through 30, not just numerical increase, but One of them says there's going to be a famine in the whole Roman world, and what are they moved to do in this church? They are moved to give an offering to the church in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. So two thoughts about that. One thought is that a commentator, I think, wisely noted that glad generosity, like what we see here, is often a sign of what happens, and it's a sign of a true work of God. It distinguishes a true work of God from something that's just kind of an emotional passing fad, right? When people are, when God's really on the move, people's attitudes start changing in a crisis from, man, how are we going to survive? And the attitude starts changing to, how can I help somebody who's in a worse situation than I am, right? So this is evidence that what's going on in Antioch is real. It's deep. Because when crisis, when they see a crisis coming down the road, they actually become more generous, not less. My second reflection here was a question I actually had when I was reading this, which is, if there's going to be a famine in the whole Roman world, why did they just want to send an offering to Judea? Why Judea in particular, where Jerusalem is? What's up with that? And part of it may be just that that's where most of the believers in the world still were at the time, is Judea. It could be that simple. It could be that the believers in Judea are mostly Jewish, and so these new Gentile believers want to kind of extend an olive branch back to the Jewish community and affirm that, yes, we are grafted in branches to the tree that you've already been a part of, and we're grateful to be part of the family. It could be that simple as well. But I wonder if there's just one more piece to it. I wonder if it has something to do with how the church, the financial situation of the church in Jerusalem because of how they had been living with their money up to this point in Acts. Do you remember what the church in Jerusalem was doing back in chapters 2 and chapter 4 with their money? What kind of pattern they had established? They were selling their extra properties. They were liquidating their 401ks to take care of the members of the community who didn't have enough, right? To the point where there was not a single poor person among them, we saw in chapters 2 and chapter 4 and a little bit in chapter 5. Um... So, maybe when we preached that months ago now, uh, and we were praising them from the pulpit for it, maybe some of you were turning to each other and saying, hey, Dave Ramsey told me that's not a good idea, actually. Because um, when disaster comes later on, somebody's going to have to bail you out. That doesn't make any sense. Um, and so, now you get vindicated because, sure enough, here comes the famine, and now these people need a bailout, Right? I think the point in the trajectory of Acts, the point that Luke's making is actually just the opposite of that. It's not to make us more tight with our money, it's to allow us to loosen our grip a little bit. That's what it does to me anyway, when I read that these people were generous to a point that some of us would call foolish with their money way back when, taking care of those in the community who were in need, and now when a famine comes, they don't have anything to store away to prepare for the famine. What does God do? He raises up a group of believers far, far away who had never heard of them before and provides means and resources out of their abundance to take care of those who had trusted God with their resources in in the past. I think it's a beautiful picture and it makes me want to trust God more to be more generous uh, with my own wealth and resources. The quote you've heard is, "...from each according to his ability." to each according to his needs, right? You've heard that before. From each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. That was Karl Marx, actually. Um, and uh, some of you are probably like, that's what happens when we let a millennial in the pulpit. We um, <laughs> start getting communist quotes. Um, so let me make you a little more nervous for a second and say that quote, actually he could have just been quoting Acts when Karl Marx put that slogan in his books, right? Look at it. From each according to his ability, that's exactly 11.29. Acts 11.29. From each according to his ability. To each according to their needs, that's chapters 2 and 4 of the book of Acts. Um, And uh, it's a really good summary, actually, of the New Testament ethic when it comes to distribution of resources. The problem is, Karl Marx located it in the exactly wrong place, didn't he? He located it in the socio-political realm of government forcing people to do this. Where the New Testament locates it is in the voluntary community of faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you take it out of the voluntary community of faith and it's not governed by the Holy Spirit and it's being orchestrated by sinful, selfish people like we all are, it has never worked. History has borne out. It's been a super, super damaging system to every country that has tried it as a political system and economic system, right? Right? But within the family of faith, I just want to just encourage us not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But that quote, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, could be a great summary of the money ethic that is to exist among us as believers, voluntarily participating in it in the family of the Lord. So along the way in this passage, we've tried to connect some of what we saw in Antioch to our own situation here at North Sub, here on the North Shore. I just want to finish with two concluding big picture thoughts on the passage as a whole. One, did you find yourself somewhere in this story? Did you identify maybe with those unnamed church planters early on and did something, was something stirred in your heart about maybe you'll be the next one who will go out from North Sub to take the gospel to the nations? Maybe you were challenged like I was by Barnabas. Maybe you... Realize, you know, I could be a Saul who teaches and sends roots down deep among a community of believers who need that. Where did you see yourself in this story? How would God speak to you in those characters? But secondly, I want to ask us as a church um, what if this was our legacy as a church at North Sub? What if we were an Antioch type of church? And that's what we became known as. Antioch ended up after this story, this is how it was born, but it ended up, we're going to see in the rest of Acts, being a launch pad for. Churches all over the Roman Empire. What if we were that? And actually, the question should be clarified because what if we continued to be that would be the real question. Knowing the history of North Sub, which I've gotten to learn over the past couple weeks, since 1959, when North Sub was founded, we have sent out 71 missionaries to 29 countries. That's more than one a year, and that's just counting the long-term missionaries, people that go for years and years to different places. You'll see out in the hallway this map... Um, you can look at it on your way out. It's going to be up for another week or two. But this is something that was made a few years back that shows where we've sent people to, just, just as North Sub, where we've sent people to all over the world and who they are and what they've done. We have been a sending church. We have been an Antioch-type church for the 59 years of our existence, sending out people with our support all over the world to share the gospel uh, with the nations. Um, on top of that, Several of the leaders of our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church, which has hundreds and hundreds of churches in it, several of the leaders, the top leaders in our denomination went to North Sub. Did you realize that? The president, the current president of our denomination went here, was married up here on this stage, right? Fritz Dale, who works in the national office, is very high in our denomination, went here, worked in the youth program. Stephen Weathers currently worships with us, and he's one of the top, top people in the Evangelical Free Church of America right now. We are a church who has a reputation, it had a reputation for 59 years of sending people out from here to be leaders in our denomination and evangelists around the world. And so that's a beautiful legacy, but we need to remember that Antioch, the city we've been looking at today, didn't remain Antioch forever. It, at some point along the way, waned in its influence as sending out people to all over the world. And it's a reminder to us that just because we've had 59 years of this legacy doesn't mean we're going to have another 59, right? If we cease to imitate the characters in this story by gossiping the gospel wherever we go like those unnamed church planters did, by encouraging and exhorting and calling people's gifts out like Barnabas did, by planting deep roots like Barnabas and Saul did together, if we fail to do those things or if we cease to do them, then our Antioch days as a church could end up being in the rearview mirror like they were for Antioch. Listen, in the book of Acts, we see that the Lord will add to the Lord. People get added to the Lord, and the Lord's the one that does the adding. So he's going to do it. He's going to bring the results, and we can entrust him with those results, whether things are going well or aren't going well right now at any given moment. But he allows us to partner with us, with him in it along the way. And so let's do our part by renewing our commitment to be an Antioch-type church here on the North Shore, living like the saints in Antioch did. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of getting to worship and serve in a church that has such a legacy, that has placed such a priority on reaching the nations with your gospel. Lord, we want to be that church always. Don't let us get sidetracked by the enemy who so badly wants us to hole up in our castle and protect ourselves from what's out there instead of going out to the nations with the good news we've received. Lord, give us the spirit of these unnamed church planters. Help the gospel to just be so full and rich in us that it just spills out of us wherever we go. Give us the eyes of Barnabas to see your grace at work. Even in the midst of places where there's problems, help us to be able to encourage those around us in their giftedness and how you've called them to lead. And Lord, like Barnabas and Saul, help us to send down deep roots and help us always prioritize that as a church so that we have a foundation that can be built on for years and years to come. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take a seat for just a minute. A few questions came through. And I'll address quickly. Sorry. Um, one of them um, asked, "Can we preach things like this more often, so that we don't cease being on mission?" And I think that's important that we do continue to come back to texts like this, messages like this, from time to time, because I know I'm prone to forget. And the Bible actually teaches that as a people, that's just part of who we are, is we are prone to forget. We need constant reminders, even if things we've already known, even if things we've been exhorted to. Uh, So yes, we plan absolutely as a church to continue preaching um, about the mission that we've been called to. Someone noted that uh, verse 19 says, they spoke the word to no one except Jews at first, right before they got to Antioch. Was this an exclusion by design or just an oversight lost in the excitement of the events. And we aren't told explicitly why it is that they were just preaching to Jews in several of these cities before some people in Antioch started preaching to Gentiles as well. Uh, We can imagine some different opportunities, some different reasons why there might have been. It could be, there could be just simple uh, ethnocentrism, racism, that these are Jewish people going and they uh, don't want to preach to Gentiles. There's no indication that that necessarily was there, but I know my own heart well enough to know that may be the case. It may just be that they felt more comfortable with Jews, so when they went to a new city, they went and found other Jewish people to find a place in the community there, and that just happened to be who they were sharing with. Um, There could be other reasons. Um, They could have had theological reasons for still not being convinced that the Gentiles should get it. Um, But for whatever reason, it was remaining with just the Jews until this group that went to Antioch started sharing with the Gentiles as well. Um, this is a good question. You seem to be saying that sharing the gospel is not a planned technique, but an organic and embodied event. If it is the latter, how do we get there by trying harder? Um, I want to first say that just because it's an organic embodied event often, like in this story, doesn't mean that it's never a planned event. Uh, I want to make sure to reiterate what I tried to say a couple times, which is, There is a place for strategy and planning, and I believe in it deeply, and this NCD team is going to give us strategies and plans, and I'm really glad that they are because it's very, very helpful. All I was saying is that can't be the source of our confidence that we're going to do well in evangelism because here we have an instance, and there are many other instances and acts that it's completely unplanned, and yet uh, there's fruit that comes from it. Um, But the question still remains, how do we get there? Uh, how do we get there by trying harder? Is that just all it is? Um, I think maybe just there's two parts to that that aren't just limited to just trying harder. One of them is how deeply do we believe the gospel ourselves? Have we really grasped the gospel if it doesn't just spill out of us, you know? For some of us, the issue may be that we actually find out, like many Christian ministers have over the years, that they got converted halfway into their ministry because they realized, I actually haven't gotten the gospel yet, um, and that could be what produces that in us. Um, another thing might just be our neighbor love. How much do we love our neighbors? You know, thinking about our families who don't know the Lord, our friends who don't know the Lord. If there was any other piece of news that greatly impacted their lives, we wouldn't hesitate at all to share that with them as soon as we could, honestly. Right? So if we're not doing that with the gospel, how much do we really love that person? And it would an increase in neighbor love towards those around us increase uh our frequency of sharing and evangelism those are some thoughts that are starting to percolate around in my mind as i'm preparing to teach a three-week class on evangelism here uh in february um there was one more question i want to make sure to address um you seem to be saying that sharing oh no that we just we just went to somebody had a good critique um can't find it, but the gist was that Acts chapter 5, verse 4 goes against the Karl Marx quote. Uh, here's what Acts chapter 5, verse 4 says They're talking to Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit and were killed uh, eventually. It's, and Peter says to them, While the land remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So the gist of the question, I think, is, hey, in essence, Sapphira didn't have to sell their extra land. Peter is affirming that they had the choice. It was yours to do what you want with. Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit, right? And I want to just affirm again the word that I kept making sure was in there when I was preaching it is voluntary. This is a voluntary community of faith. So even if it is from each according to their ability, we are voluntarily allowed to, with the Holy Spirit, decide and determine What is my ability? Maybe I don't have the ability to sell this property right now. That's okay. I don't have to. It's a voluntary community of faith, and I'm giving according to my ability. To each according to their needs, we have the Holy Spirit in us, and we have choices to make in a voluntary community about if there's no need for somebody to have this property right now, then I can hold on to it. I'm free to do so. I'm free to make those choices in the community of faith, not legislated or handed down by church leaders, and that's the way this economic system uh, of Uh, distribution of wealth to those in need in the family of faith works throughout the New Testament Um, I think a few questions have come in while I've been sharing but I'll cut it here and we'll maybe address those in uh, a future newsletter I really do love talking through these questions so thanks for sending them and I wish we had time to go to a couple more I want to leave us with a benediction so if you'd please rise this is from the last verse of second Corinthians it came to mind as I was reflecting on Barnabas, who saw the grace of God at work, and I want to be more of that kind of a person, um, and here's how Paul closes the letter of Second Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As you go out from this place, um, sent from this church, as those were sent eventually from Antioch, go with that with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Bless you.